0: Endocrine disruption is the biggest freight train, by far, to ever hit chemistry. It's very hard for the chemical enterprise to adjust to it, and they have resisted it uh, ferociously now for 20 years, and they are only just starting to lose these
1: battles. Welcome to On the Mission with Norwex Learning Network. I'm Amy Kadora. We created this show to help raise awareness about issues that can impact our quality of life, including harmful chemicals, plastic pollution, and sustainability. We'll also explore the simple changes that you can make to improve you, your families, and the planet's health. A champion of green science, Dr. Terry Collins is the Teresa Hines Professor of Green Chemistry. And he's also the director of the Institute for Green Science at Carnegie Mellon University in Pennsylvania. He received his undergraduate and doctoral degrees from the University of Auckland in New Zealand, where he is a distinguished alumnus. He taught the very first course in green chemistry back in 1992, which was called Chemistry and Sustainability. In his research career, Terry has created TAMIL activators with the help of his brilliant students and his collaborators, and the TAMILs demonstrated potential for safely avoiding and eliminating pollutants and pathogens in water and soil. Terry is the creator and founder of Sudoc, uh, a company that is commercializing TAMIL catalyst applications while developing a working example of what a sustainable chemical corporation must actually come to look like. Really excited to have you here today, Dr. Collins. And um, I know in our introductory conversation, um, we were just fascinated with the world that you kind of opened our eyes to, and would love to hear a little bit more about this idea of green chemistry, uh, which I didn't realize, you know, from your perspective, is now. Uh, probably better titled "Sustainable Chemistry," which I love even more. But if you could tell us a little bit about that, and then what inspired you to and motivated you to really make it your your life's work, because it has been your life's work.
0: Yeah, when I started my independent academic career, going back to 1980, I I need something um, beyond. Uh, I would rather apply science to something that I consider uh is worth spending a lifetime on. And, and I had that very much in mind back in 1980. Um, and the at that time what people were finding is that chlorination of water produces chlorination, chlorinated disinfection byproducts. And that a significant amount of the cancers of some internal organs in humans were being caused by these chlorinated disinfection byproducts. So by 1995, we had the catalysts. And um, yeah, they I, I would argue that we were really doing green chemistry without the name back in in uh, 1980. Now, in 1991, the name got um, officially introduced at the EPA. And the definition is a really good one. The design of chemical products and processes to reduce and eliminate the use and generation of hazardous substances. That's exactly what we were doing. Um, and I thought, whoopee, this is just fantastic. Um, and I produced a, some, the, the first principles, and they're sort of squirreled away in the literature. And then a couple of my friends produced a more extensive set of principles. And I thought, okay, well, we'll we've got to build a field. You know, we need to work together. So I'm going to back these other principles. Now, the problem with the other principles is that um, they mix big ideas with the little ideas, But i thought we'd grow i thought the field would grow and the principles would develop and that was just fine with me at the time but we didn't what happened is the field was very easy to to exploit in the following way if you're if you are an industry with um really serious toxic compounds like endocrine disruptors Mm -hmm. the last thing you want is a big field in academia sort of breathing down your neck and and so industrial hostility, which transfers even sub- subliminally, I believe, to academics who-, who want to say, oh, we don't want to upset industry, uh, meant that the field focused on very low-level um, problems like cleaning up chemical reactions. Now, if you go and clean up a chemical reaction for making something, you save the company some money. You produce less waste by using less toxic compounds you 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 don't have as inherently um uh hazardous uh uh, technology so your you know your constraints inside the workplace are, are are lowered you'll have fewer concerns there but if the company is doing what it's supposed to do in jurisdictions like America and Europe um they've got to treat the waste anyway it doesn't get out into the environment mm-hmm.
1: uh,
0: if they're doing what they're supposed to. It doesn't cause a problem. So, your net impact on sustainability is marginal at best. On the other hand, if you are making uh, endocrine disruptor, and in some of the cases, uh, these improved synthetic improvers were, improvements were, uh, were to make major domo. Um, endocrine disruptors for the economy on a grand scale, but less toxically, it makes absolutely no sense. And all of this got lost. Endocrine disruption is the biggest freight train by far to ever hit chemistry. Um, It's very hard for the chemical enterprise to adjust to it because it means, frankly, a lot of their compounds have to go from commerce, and they have resisted it. Uh, ferociously now for 20 years and they are only just starting to lose these battles. So eventually after working to try to get people, I, I, I was finding myself just getting more and more fanatical <laughs> and, and crazy endocrine disruption, you know, um, and and it wasn't working. My colleagues were not going, to, at the time, were not going to pick up on this. They just weren't going to. Um, it takes an enormous amount of effort as the chemist to dig in and understand endocrine disruption just for starters. the minute you start doing it, you'll offend industry and that will affect your funding. And so you know i, I just sort of thought, well, okay, I just can't do this anymore. It's making me sick. <laughs> and so um I went and and changed my affiliations and and the the people I, uh, talk with on a weekly, even daily basis, to people who uh, who work in endocrine disruption around the world. And ever since I did that, I've been much happier. Um, and we have um, really made major progress um, in dealing with which, which, as far as I'm concerned, is the top shelf problem of what what should have been green chemistry's top shelf problem. Uh, but because they wouldn't accept that, um, but the field that really matters has to have an, um, another name now the european union has just uh it really um, i think it's since um von der leyen the the new president of the european commission came on board i think i think she Ursula von der leyen i think she's really magnificent um and the european commission we because because we've been looking and people like pete myers and Uh, Fred von Saal and Pat Hunt, and I I, I could go on and on and on, Um, uh, Barbara Demenure, who have been working like crazy to try to get um, jurisdictional uh, agencies to take this problem seriously.
1: So Um, so let me ask you this. So, you know, endocrine disruption is something that um, certainly Norwex has been very aware of. We actually have um, people on staff, uh, uh, PhDs even, that are, um, you know, that understand this issue and have really helped us to broaden our awareness of it. And and I'm wondering, um, you know, from your perspective, was there a point at which you realized that endocrine disruption was Uh, you know of 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 many of the many health issues that we humans and even the 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 animal population the environment at large um deal with and manage was there a point at which in that research that you just the light switch went on and you realized, yeah Yeah, this is critical this needs to be essentially what you're saying is my life's passion my life's work
0: yeah so well so i was passionate uh, 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 about doing something for purifying water without putting carcinogens in there. Um, but what happened in, in, uh, 1996, the book, our stolen future was published by right. Theo Coleman, Pete Myers and Dan Dumnoski. And, um, I read it and when I read it, I thought, Oh my God, this can't really, is this true? So I read it again and I, it looked, it's incredibly convincing mm. and it's essentially, um, it picks up really on what was anticipated in Silent Spring by Rachel Carson right. um, and was giving mechanistic um, rationalizations of the effects on wildlife that that she was um, really highlighting. So, you know, right. hear a lot about the bald eagles and the thinning eggs. It was more than that. Um, the... Uh, uh, DDT, or actually DDT, a metabolite, apparently, uh, was impacting the male bald eagles, so they weren't interested in the ladies, and so they'd sort of oh, sit on I the nest. I
1: didn't realise that.
0: <laughs> yeah, they'd sit on the sit on the nest and stare out into space. And of course, there are people who really watch eagles very closely. They're, they're incredibly fascinating. And they were noticing that the, the animals went mating. And it turns out to almost certainly have been a demasculinization effect in, in eagles. And then we had gulls over on Catalina Island where the bird watchers were noticing that, hey, um, there's twice as many eggs in the next as usual. <laughs> and then they figure out, oh, that's two females cohabiting. Um, and the likely reason was that the, you know, the males wouldn't give them any affection. And this, this is something that's happening right throughout nature. The, Lou had discovered that uh, the male alligators in Lake Apopka, which is, I think, the third or fourth biggest lake in, in Florida, um, not only were they not, uh, they, they weren't able to do their job, with the lady alligators uh, but essentially their their reproductive machinery was miniaturized mm-hmm. and uh this was correlated with a leak of organochlorines into Lake of yeah so this this is happening all over the place and then you're also seeing things like okay you feed minks so if you have a mink farm and you're feeding minks from the great lakes the babies do get born, but they come out and waste away, and they're dead, all dead in a couple of weeks. Whereas if you're feeding them with fish from the Pacific or the Atlantic, they're just fine. And that was attributed to toxicants. The fish were picking up out of the Great Lakes. And so that's just the start. There, there are like unbelievable numbers of these stories. And then you, you suddenly f- find things like um, that. So the uterus of um, a rodent is Y-shaped. And, you know, they might have a dozen or 15 or uh, more um, pups. I'm not sure exactly what the number is, but it's a lot. And and so they're lined up in this Y-shaped uterus and they don't move around. So you've got the one that's at the end, it uh, doesn't, doesn't get to swap places with his brothers and sisters. He stays right at the end of that, that pup stays. And so it, it turns out Fred von Sal in the, in the 90s showed that, if you were a female pup and you were born between two males, you were masculinized. And if you were a male pup and you were born between two females, you were demasculized. And what it was, was testosterone. In the case of the females leaking from the two brothers side by side in unbelievably small amounts were sneaking across to you and impacting essentially your behavior in, in life. Uh, once they were born, the males really didn't want much to do with these sort of sort of tomboy uh, females. Um, and, you know, it goes on. Tyrone Hayes is showing mm-hmm. that you can take frogs um, uh, at the, t- at the uh, early life stages and, and Uh, uh, expose them to one part per billion of one of the most significant uh, herbicides that's used in the country atrazine Mm -hmm. and you literally turn it is it depends on the strain Mm -hmm. of frog that there are different outcomes for different strains you'll take a male frog and you will you know from day one they're swimming around in this um and they will compare they'll be males biologically, but they will develop female reproductive uh, Hmm. machinery and they're fully capable of mating with males and having, you know, eggs and tadpoles, basically. But they're actually males. You're completely confused. And you see with fish that the active ingredient in the reproductive pill, ethanol estradiol, you know, you start feminising the male fish of certain species at one part per trillion of ethanol estradiol in the water, and by feminising, this is what it means. Well, first of all, they get a female-only protein uh, turning up in their blood called vitellogenin. Um, then, you know, as they swim, as they're there for longer, um, they start growing eggs in their testes then they lose their testes and they might have one ovary and one testy, or they might go all the way to two ovaries and they're supposed to be a male. And so this is really shocking stuff. And because it's happening uh, sort of right across the animal kingdom, it's very likely happening with us. So I was really tuned in to um, the work that was being done um, with male and female human reproductive health, in the 90s and in particular the work of the group headed by Neil Skakabach at the Royal Hospital in Copenhagen uh he, he comes out with a paper they come out with a paper saying oh uh well we've lost more than 50 from 1930s till I don't know 1970s we've lost more than 50 percent of sperm count in the um, in the males, human males, looking back at the historical records of sperm counts. And everybody screamed right. and said it was nonsense. And Shana Swan came along thinking it was wrong and went to try to prove it wrong and found she couldn't. So then she studied it more and more. And um, last year in February 23, actually, of, uh, of, of 2021, she published Countdowns. Uh, which is uh, based on her studies with Hargai Levine and and others to show that um, we really have is from 1973 to 2011, we lost nearly 60% of sperm count. And actually, if you project that line, because it looks like a pretty straight line during those periods, if you project it out, you you have, in the West, uh, sperm counts asymptotically approaching zero at at 2045. So this means that quite a bit before that, we're going to have lost the uh, ability in the majority of the population for males to father uh, a child the old fashioned Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And and those, those, uh, those, those males are being born today. They're, they're the, the babies of now are the babies of are, are, are the males of reproductive age in, in the 2040s. So I, I think we're in shocking trouble. And of course, I, I consider it to be incredibly important to deal with it.
1: You know, I, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the um, kind of the challenges of infertility that certainly we've all heard. We probably know somebody uh, if we haven't experienced it ourselves in 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 the difficulty. And oftentimes we're told, um, well, it's because you're under stress or maybe you're the, you know, advanced maternal age. You know, you get the, you hear this and it's always troubled me because I think it's, it's, uh, there are more, there are more challenges than just those that are impacting our fertility levels and i do think that edc's and our exposures to them uh, are significant there one question i was going to ask you was um, as you're looking at edc's and our you know human exposure to them in particular is there a class or a specific chemical that you are most concerned about as you're looking well, at that? well
0: to start with unfortunately there are a lot of them not not every uh, commercial chemical is an endocrine disruption but a lot are um, and so the poster child um endocrine disruptor is BPA um and there are about 30 um uh, relatives of BPA where only one is demonstrably not an estrogen mm-hmm. um and so uh, I think there the, the, uh, there are there are literature published studies. If you if you're working in a company company with BPA um, and you're a male, you'll have a high likelihood of losing your libido. Um, I know other staff through potential uh, legal action um, where I might have uh, become involved, where it's very clear that um, I, it must be a very large number of people are mm-hmm. uh, doing jobs that regularly expose them to bpa and its and its uh small resin short shorter resins where where they they are being uh, severely reproductively impacted and they take the stuff home to their family um on their clothing and it, uh, the effects mm-hmm. are turning up in in and family members wives and things so oh i didn't in, realize
1: that so they're taking it home like on them uh from their workplace
0: yeah, yeah well in, in the particular case i know a lot about that's obviously going on um and and so sooner or later this is going to come out one in one way shape or form it's going to come out and um we have a, a, a you know this is one of them i'm looking at a big tv screen that's almost certainly got some polycarbonate in it somewhere. And polycarbonate is is, or well, Lexan plastic is basically, you know, uh, approximately 90% BPA, uh, where the molecules are handcuffed together. They have two arms and BPA, and they're handcuffed together by handcuffs that when you when you get out into into the environment, say in landfill, which is where a lot of aliens are, the handcuffs rust and the BPA is set free. And you you end up with extraordinary concentrations of BPA and landfill leachate, um, and that you know that then gets mixed in with with other waters, maybe with water tables and things like that. It's all so so we just are having incredible trouble accepting that you simply can't throw thousands of chemicals that are living entity like us and expect nothing to happen Mm
1: -hmm. right
0: right and bpa is a biggie and the phthalates are are anti androgens. they are they are probably probably enormous sources of this uh problem wherever you see a highly chemicalized society it's a word chemicalized i i i'm using I, I, yeah, well, because I think it's a, the right, the right, the the right term. It does, a, a, a new term. I'm making it up. Highly chemicalized society, right? Right. Wherever you see one, you're going to see low birth rates. And when you start looking closer, you're going to see young couples struggling to have children.
1: Mm-hmm. What country do you think is right now is doing a fairly good job? Of taking chemicals, particularly EDCs, considering them, uh, working to regulate them to reduce them from the top down, is—is is there a country or a government that you look at or and you say, "Hey, this one, good model here. This is a good starting point here."
0: All right. So, countries across the board, up until very recently, have done a dreadful job, absolutely pitiful. Mm-hmm. But uh, the European Union uh, is doing is doing the right thing. So. Um, let me see, uh, October 14, 2020, they published the Chemical Strategy for Sustainability. Um, and it's got all the right ideas in it, as far as I'm concerned. So I think the EU is is really our best hope. Now, having a really good strategy and turning and acting on that strategy are different things. And so we can already see um, the industry uh, shells streaking um about and trying to stop this um but we're actually they're not winning the battles as easily as they used to so for example the high court in europe just ruled that bpa is uh going to stay on the substances of very high concern list and that means that and the the ruling cannot be appealed and that that just takes it legally into a whole new category of nasty chemical in Europe that the the industry making it was trying to keep it out of. Uh, Plastics Europe was the trade association that was um, fighting that and they lost. That's really good that they lost. And then the the European Food and Safety Authority um, had an expert panel that just has issued a report saying that they think that the tolerable daily dose of um, bpa in europe should be lowered by a factor of a hundred thousand
1: that's just insane to me i mean you know and 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 it it actually proves the point that that we've been really focused focusing on which is there is no safe limit for a lot of these chemicals right right? no matter what you say they just aren't
0: right absolutely we've got we've got these these arguments going on well Gosh, is BPA free when it's inside us, or is it conjugated with things nature's, uh, our body sticks on it, um, and we only really have to worry about the free stuff? And so, if our bodies are tidying it up, it's perfectly okay to throw it into us. I mean, this is this kind of argument is it has carried the day for a couple of decades. It's preposterous. Right. I mean, babies don't have the machinery all in place to protect themselves. For no. one thing. And when you're looking at urine, you know uh, uh, nature puts these groups on BPA to help them go through the kidney membranes. What comes across the kidney may be very different from what's on the other side of the kidney in the blood. It's it's just these are nonsense arguments and they're, they're kind of red herrings. And, and essentially, if you look at the sea of the chemical enterprise right now, all you see is bright red fish <laughs> swimming all right. over the place. Right. And so it's got to, it's got to stop. And because the, sterilization once, once people get this, it's what, once they understand what's happening to them and it, and it, it um, catches in the, in the, in the, uh, global population well first of all they're going to blame us chemists and and i'm certainly not responsible for it right and well, it's, well, no. <laughs> it, it, these are these are this is these are money first north uh things civilization notion that's, that's typical
1: mm-hmm.
0: and we have to get smarter than that we have to be sustainability first in all things sorry guys you know, you're going to have to lose your your. It's going to affect our products. I'm looking at a, at a giant TV right now, because it really makes working so much easier if you, if, if things are big, right, right? And but it's an algae from from Korea, and um, like I said, it's good. It will have some BPA in it, or you can bet the bank and a whole lot of other EDCs probably as well. And when you look at Korea, that makes all of these cars, which have a lot of bpa the paints for example and some of the lenses that are used in the lights are, uh polycarbonate um is, and and you know the phones that they make the samsung's and the lg this and and etc etc cetera, et cetera, that that population has to be really highly exposed to these chemicals and when you look at their birth rate it's 0.84 per woman you need 2.1 to 2.2 to maintain a citizen population. At 0.84, you're disappearing.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: Korea Korea has its own unique language and culture that they're in shocking shape because of all these things that the chemical things that that um, have made them wealthy and prosperous, mm-hmm. um, but at great expense to the Korean people.
1: You know, I used to hear, um, even from our founder many years ago, <clears throat> he would talk about population decline and the second ec- extinction of the, the human population because of our exposure to EDCs. And honestly, at the time I thought, no, that, I mean, that's not, I, I, I get it, but that, that seems like a pretty extreme result uh, from, but well, he, he uh, when was he, but when he was ahead he of his saying, time. He was ahead of his time. Saying,
0: how long ago was he saying this?
1: Well, he was saying that probably 10 years ago. And,
0: and oh, he's, he's one of the really early, I, I mean, I wrote it as, a, as, a as a likely outcome or a possible outcome in science in 2000, mm-hmm. I'm picking up on my reading of, and of our stolen future and the human, yeah. the human studies, but he's really in terms of, um, uh, of an industrial leader, he's really a uh, clairvoyant. This, it, it, we really have to deal with this.
1: We do, and it it needs to be, the issue has got to be, we've got, we've got to have more voices raising the issue and also not only raising awareness, but also I think part of what you're doing is trying to create a new way of looking at chemicals when you're talking about sustainable chemistry and talking about that entire approach to chemistry being very very different and even different from green chemistry because that was just the nascent, that the very beginnings of this you know kind of new age of chemistry. So I, I love what you're saying about sustainable chemistry. Are there? I'm just curious. Are there any um, when you think about sustainable chemistry? And you, you mentioned a little bit about principles. Is there a definition and then criteria for what would be what would either be a sustainable chemist uh, uh, chemical? or um, approach that you would want to see companies following to create sustainable chemistry?
0: Yeah. So, well, my when, when you talk about principles, these, these should be uh, t- start at the 40,000-foot overview mm-hmm. and, and tell people right away what the field is all about. So the principles I came up with in the mid-'90s for green chemistry is um, that it was about protecting life. Mm -hmm. essentially it was number one thing is we're here to protect life uh by doing whatever doing chemistry changing chemistry but we're here it's all about protection of life the second thing is hey dudes fellow chemists we can't do this by ourselves we don't know enough so therefore green chemistry now sustain safe and the europeans calling it safe and sustainable chemistry that's fine by me um uh so the next the next principle was it's got to be multidisciplinary I had to move to the critical discipline, which is the endocrine disruption researchers to just feel happy that we're actually uh, looking like we were doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And then the third the third thing was that the way that science is funded, um, it really militates against getting this right, because People are supposed to be productive, which means publish a lot of papers because people can count. Right. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's a little bit better than that, but it sure helps if you publish a lot of papers for getting more money. You can't do this stuff fast. You can't. You can't. You know, you're sitting down in the depth of a discipline doing work down there. You've got to come out of that hole and go and look down other holes and say, "Hey, guys, what are you doing down there? Right. Uh, let's collaborate." And that takes a lot more time and is a lot more complicated and it's a lot more holistic. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, right away the the, the, the funding patterns of pr- pretty much everywhere uh, are going to uh, force this field to its knees if it tries to do the right thing. And I realized that, like I said, in the mid-90s. Um, and so actually that was intuitively and then quite deliberately I, I set up and trying to fund what I do. In different ways from from the way that uh, things are funded, and it just kind of worked out. I've been kind of uh, you had to be creative, right? Yeah, you do have to be creative for the funding. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you've got a few good breaks along the way that made a big difference. But yeah, get a little anyway, luckier. There. That's right. Yeah, yeah, right. So, so those those are key things. Okay. But um, with the Europeans now, you know, the question is: okay, so where do we go from here? And uh, so I'm, I'm drafting something that w- w- myself and a group of colleagues will publish to try to help, uh, uh, you know, lend our thoughts on what Europe should actually do. It's, f- it's fairly simple, actually, but uh, it needs to be put down.
1: So as you're looking at, you know, and, and operating at this kind of higher level, if you think about individuals, if you think about even let's take yourself, What are the the key actions, like the top three things, if you have more, that's fine, that you would think individuals should be doing to try to reduce their exposure to EDCs? And this is a question I ask all of our guests because I I love to see kind of the different perspectives and and help, help people that are listening um understand that it's yes, it's a complex issue. Yes, we are exposed on uh you know these are everyday everywhere types of chemicals, but what can we do at our for our families to try to bring it down?
0: Yeah, so well, you know, I really ad- admire the environmental working group, this this really splendid nonprofit that Ken Cook put together. Yep. Um, it's been doing business for, for a long time now. And um one of the things they did is they took a group of uh, a couple of families, wasn't a very large group, but it didn't need to be for the study in my opinion. And they, they had them on, let's say a conventional, a la whole foods diet where the vegetables and fruit and uh, being exposed to pesticides and the, um, you know, the meat had got antibiotics and stuff like that. in. Right. Um, and, and they, they fed them that diet measured the you could you could see the pesticides for example in their urine and they had a couple of groups going side by side i think i can't quite remember all the details but um a a group some group or subgroup was put on organic food and you just watched the the chemicals disappear from the urine so i think the number one this i I just came up in 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 my class Mm -hmm. chemistry sustainability this this week what do we do i think the number one thing to do is eat organic and I really think universities across the, the country and the world should be offering organic food options to their students because the, these are the young people of reproductive age and they, they shouldn't be uh, these pesticides are intricate, no doubt about it. A whole lot of them. Are. And so um so that's that that's the number one thing. Now that's the second thing is you, you know, you can um, the furniture, it, so back in the 1970s, I think late 70s, around, around 1980, I forget the exact year, California, with the best of attentions, issued technical bulletin 117. <laughs> and this technical bulletin in, made them put enough fire retardants into things like couches and stuff uh, to to give an 11 second delay uh, uh before ignition on exposure Children,
1: children's pajamas as well it's their
0: well, that's Arlene Blum. well arlene Blum's the great hero of of actually getting rid of tb117 arlene blom she runs the science policy uh institute at, uh in in california and and arlene is 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 one um uh, uh wonderful and relentless lady she she got rid of tb117 at top 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 several decades i suppose but uh she got rid of it um uh, so you can now buy furniture so so if you if you're if you're built making furniture for the california market particularly if you're china sending furniture to the u.s it's all lo- all loaded with these um fire retardants that are endocrine disruptors and so uh you know you can you, you don't have to use the fire retardants. you can wrap the the, uh, foams and, and things or the stuffings you can wrap it in a wool because wool doesn't burn, burn, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, ignite easily. And so that gets you, that gets you 11 seconds and more. Right. Right. And right. so, and so you, by, uh, getting rid of f- furniture from your housing, you, you know, I sort of go into places and realize oh, every time somebody sits on that couch, they get a, a, a puff of brominated fire retardants coming out.
1: Right. It's in your TV. It's in your LG TV, right? It's in your t- yes, that's right. And who
0: sure. was, I think you just said no more brominated fire retard. The, the brominated ones aren't the only problematic ones, but they sure are a problem. Here's how this works by the way. Let's suppose you you get a car and you drive along the Israeli side of the Dead Sea, which I've done I wasn't driving I was looking I was driven by it by, by a friend and colleague you just go past so the Dead Sea is a absolute uh gold mine of minerals uh, all the salts that are in there so you go past so there's the magnesium plant there's the sodium plant there's the lithium plant or maybe not lithium there's the there's the lead plant and here's the bromine plant all right so when you when you when you do the electrolysis that gives you the metals, you got to get the chlorides and the bromides and the other things. And the question is, what the heck do you do with all that bromine? And, and I, th- it, it's done not only in the Dead Sea, it, but it's not done in too many places in the world. And so, you know, I've got these companies who figured out, well, gosh, you know, if we, throw it onto carbon compounds and get these, we, we, we and with this TV one, one seven, we can, we can, we can sell a hell of a lot of bromine. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. so just, it just is really unfortunate. The compounds are endocrine disruptors, but they are, uh, enough of them are that it, it's the whole class is suspect. So yeah. Um,
1: it's interesting I mean. that when you think through in so many, um, instances, something that's bad for us has come as a result of, in effect, someone, a company or other trying to find a use for something that they have, uh, yeah. which kind of links back to money, right? This, this desire to to make money, which um, I think is at the heart of a lot of it. So you've got food, which makes total sense. Furniture. Do you have a third one you throw in there for people to think um, about?
0: Well, it, the, the problem with the third one is that, uh, so if you're using makeup and and stuff you stick on your skin, um, you, you, th- there's usually a smorgasbord of chemicals in these products.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: typically if you look, you can find something problematic. And so I consulted um, pro bono because the company's is wonderful um, with Hillary Peterson's cosmetic company. Mm-hmm. And... And so Hillary um, was really, really uh, concerned and diligent to make sure that the chemicals she was putting in her products didn't have any of these nasty effects. And so she came to me and she said, well, Terry, I've got this, that, and the other. And I said, well, I don't, I don't care if they came from nature. I want to see the tests. I want to see you test them for developmental toxicity in, say, zebrafish. And so off she went and did the tests and she came back and she said, oh my God, I, I, a bunch of them light up the zebrafish assays. And so she started moving to chemicals that by a, Z, by a zebrafish development assay do not have these effects. And that's a really good start. It's not the end of the story, you know, but it's a really good start. And so this is really, is really what the European union has mm-hmm. to do. The, the, the first order of business is to decide what are going to be the assays that prescribe you've got an endocrine disruptor Mm -hmm. and it's not simple because endocrine hormones control what cells become and there's a whole bunch of them of the of the hormones right Mm -hmm. Right. and so and and you can mess up hormone function by messing up what the hormones actually do when they work, like binding mm-hmm. to a receptor protein that turns gene expression on, um, or blocking it. But you can also fiddle with the with the um, transport through the blood to the cells of the of the hormone, and you can fiddle with the biosynthesis of the hormone. And mm-hmm. and so, just a lot of things end up um, altering altering hormone function. Mm-hmm. That right now we've got a no data, no problems situation, and we want a no data, no market situation. Right, I love that. Yeah. You want to you want to sell this to Europeans? You go get the data that proves that you don't have these low dose adverse effects.
1: Love right? that.
0: Love that. Mm. Yeah, it's really that's a really clever way of putting it. That, they're they're really smart people. It is it is it is transformational. If the European Union can actualize. Uh, it's a chemical strategy for sustainability, without having it n- nuked by another administration coming in, or mm-hmm. the industry, um, you know, you know, uh, uh, shrieking overtime about jobs and all the rest, and winning on on that basis, um, it will be an enormous pity for humanity. We're we're really looking at an existential threat here. Mm-hmm.
1: So before we wrap up, um, we'd love to hear more about your water cleaning technology and how it works.
0: So so anyway, the whole idea was to get catalysts that would activate hydrogen peroxide to, first of all, kill pathogens, but then after the 1990s, it became also get rid of the endocrine disruptors because essentially the catalysts are activating hydrogen peroxide to burn uh, is fire and water burn organic matter and they'll take out the pathogens and they'll potentially take out the endocrine disruptors that are in the water. And we found out that they were just fabulous for that. So come 1995, we had the catalysts and we got some patents and started a company that didn't do very well. Uh, But during that 20 year period, we, um, uh, 20 years from there till about two, well, nearly 20 years, 2013, um, after a very great deal of mechanistic, analysis of the catalyst function in the Institute that I direct the Institute for Green Science at Carnegie Mellon, we've or at least I figured out, oh my gosh, um, they're not decomposing the way the catalyst we thought they were. There's another mechanism that's clearly at play. And so we're going to have to make a different kind of Tamil catalyst um, and it should be better. And we did, and it was. And so we got a whole new set of patents and we're able to start another company Called Sudoc LLC, um, where, you, you know, when you're looking at water treatment for um, endocrine disruptors or for actually they're called micropollutants, they are ch- chemicals that. Um, elicit adverse effects in living things in the aquatic system at very low concentrations. And it can be by an endocrine disruption mechanism or something else. It doesn't really matter. It's a low dose adverse effect or a low concentration adverse effect, I should say. And so, um, the, uh, the catalysts would burn these out of water. So we did a comparison and published it uh, very recently with ozone on the municipal wastewater of Tucson, Arizona. So what happens is these chemicals, they go through us first, guys, (laughs) and there's lots of implications for that. Uh, But then they go into the sewer system because we excrete them, and the activated sludge, which is a big bacterial soup that tries to grow on the organic matter that you feed to it in the water and therefore detoxify it and and make it safer, doesn't get them quickly enough such that when you the water goes out of the plant you're running low parts per billion to low parts per trillion of about a hundred compounds that really matter in the the aquatic systems they you'll miss if it's the reproductive pill estrogen ethanol estradiol you're feminizing Male fish in the rivers at one part per trillion. That process is beginning probably earlier than that, and noticeable even at one part per trillion. And the um, rivers of Europe, for example, are running higher concentrations than that of just that one chemical. Let alone all the others that are bioactive. So um, the Europeans um, are intent on doing something about it. Uh, the the first country to actually tax themselves and do something about it is Switzerland. Switzerland is putting at the end of their already spectacular water treatment plants, um, either ozone or activated carbon to get rid of the micro pollutants. And so we compared, activated carbon is gonna be a very uh, tough sell, I think for global use. Uh, the, the, The best alternative I think we have uh, with from the existing suite of technologies, as ozone, you, you can do other things that are uh, uh, even more powerful than ozone, but they they get to be really expensive. So Copenhagen, for example, nukes the water uh, with hydrogen peroxide and UV light as the last thing it does, um, and that happened because the the waste stream from their big water treatment plant is basically a river that runs through the richest part of the city. And the rich people in Copenhagen weren't having their babies and grandchildren swimming in, you know, endocrine disruption containing water. So Copenhagen has done a done a very good job, but with a different technology. Ozone uh, looks like it's the, the winning so we, technology. So we compared with ozone. And what it comes down to is if you take a kilogram, so that's like a bag of sugar, of our best catalyst right now, you would be able to treat the daily output with 10 parts per million of hydrogen peroxide which is which is um an acceptable concentration you would be able to treat the daily output of one hundred and fifty thousand europeans comparable to three parts per million of ozone that's the competitive technology and our technology is really easy to use you just mix the pound of sugar in water and and meter that water that that solution and with some hydrogen peroxide and pretty much the activity currently is over in the half-life of the catalyst is killed during the process which is a good thing and the half half half-life of the catalyst is about 20 minutes and so it's all over in about an hour you've you've um you uh You've got that performance com- compared to it in, uh, in about an hour. Now that catalyst is going to get better with the iterative cycle that I invented, and we know for certain it's going to get better, a lot better. So I think I think that we we have something that and and we study the catalysts and we uh, for endocrine disruption. There's no point in getting rid of some endocrine disruptors while you're putting others in the water. Right. So, so we, the company that we've produced is one of the things I'm most proud of is it is involving some of the world leaders of endocrine disruption science to show that a number of the assays, when we sat down uh, about a decade ago to work out how the hell do you tell if if you've got an endocrine disruptor with, with uh, my amazing endocrine disruption colleagues, and published in 2013, a suite of assays that you could use. We're using very powerful, in, in vivo, live animal uh, developmental studies of zebrafish. We've got a clean pass with the existing catalyst on that. Frogs, still ongoing studies. So far, it's looking OK. And mice. Um, and the, the mice guru, Laura Vandenberg, said the other day, well, um, based on based on the results we've got so far and it's nearly nearly completed i wouldn't have any problem with this being used but uh, but no problem for these for for these other applications so it, that that will all get published so that the world mm-hmm. can look at it mm-hmm. yeah we transparency is part of this you know the data needs to be visible to people right and then maybe may so we're trying to generate through the company an example of what the world needs um to to deal with the problem and touch wood so far it's going really well Um, well
1: i i love i love what you're saying to to have your company um be an example of how sustainable chemistry safe and sustainable chemistry can really be effective um dr collins i want to thank you for taking so much time today this is um always very informative when we have an opportunity to talk with you lots of ideas sparking i know uh, for us from this discussion and thank you for helping us to um, educate and bring awareness even more to these issues uh, particularly of edcs in our environment we appreciate you
0: oh well thank you it's a privilege to do that get help people
1: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to share with friends and family and don't forget to follow and subscribe.